Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Lair Edmund Chang. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. Today, however, we are not reviewing a consort, but rather we are starting our little series of interviews. And we are beginning today with the historian Leia Redmond Chang. And we're going to be talking to her about three 16th century queens, Catherine de' Medici, Elizabeth de Valois and Mary Queen of Scots. So we are very excited to be joined on the podcast today by the historian Leia Redmond Chang. Leia, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's really a pleasure to be here. So first of all, would you mind introducing yourself to the listeners in terms of who you are and what you do? Yes. Um, so I'm Leia Redmond Chang, and uh, I used to be a professor, an associate professor of French, French studies at the George Washington University. And several years ago, I decided to step away from that, and I'm now writing full-time. And I write uh, narrative nonfiction uh, and biography, focusing particularly on women and power. And I've just written a book called Young Queens, Three Renaissance Women and the Price of Power. Nice. Which are the three queens? Well, the three queens are from the Renaissance, uh, 16th century to be exact, and they are Catherine de' Medici, the Queen Mother of France, and her daughter, Elizabeth de Valois, who became the Queen Consort of Spain, and Catherine's daughter-in-law, Mary Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots. Oh, cool. So they all knew each other. They were all family, and they were all together for a, uh, well, a, a good period of time at the court of France before they fan out to... To different kingdoms. Could you, obviously we'll talk about them all in kind of a bit more depth, but just kind of a quick pressy of the three in terms of a, just a little bit of sort of who they are and their a bit of their character, I guess, to set us sure. up. Sure. Well, let me first just say that of the three queens, there are two that are very well known, uh, Catherine de Medici, and then of course, Mary Queen of Scots, who's probably the most famous, and one who's pretty much unknown at least to most people in the 21st century, and that is Elizabeth de Valois. So Catherine de' Medici, uh, as I said, was the, well, first she was the queen consort of France when she was married to Henry II, king of France. And then when he dies, she becomes the queen mother of France uh, because her her sons, actually three of her sons, would become the reigning king of France, um, each in succession because none of them had children who would inherit the throne. Uh, But while they were kings of France, Catherine increasingly becomes um, sort of the power behind the throne, very much the power behind the throne by the time her second son accedes to the throne, because that's when she's the regent of France. So, you know, one could argue in the second half of the 16th century that Catherine de' Medici is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful woman in Europe. And, you know, she kind of maintains that hold until she dies um, later in the century. So let me jump to her daughter-in-law, because, again, in terms of, you know, who's famous and who's known and who's not. Mary, Queen of Scots, was the sovereign Queen of Scots, which means that she was she was reigning as if she were a king. Right. Um, 
but she also is the queen consort of France when she um, was married to Catherine de' Medici's son, who was the king of France. He dies after about 18 months on the throne. And so then she's the queen dowager of France, but she's always that at that time, um, still the, the sovereign queen of Scotland. Now, the thing about Mary that's so interesting is that um, she was raised in France. She's the sovereign queen of Scotland, but by the time she's five years old, she's come to France and um, she's raised there. So in, in many ways, Mary always thinks of herself as a French woman. Hmm. Um, she does have to return to Scotland after the death of her French husband. She's 18 years old. And when she moves back to Scotland, she's still in that very much that French state of mind. And one of the things that I really explore in the book is the ways in which she's never able to leave <laughs> that French state of mind. And in, in some ways, that is the cause or that is one of the causes of her problems later in Scotland. And then last, but certainly not least, because in fact, she was uh, probably, the, I would say, the inspiration for my writing this book is Elizabeth de Valois, who, again, is the daughter of um, Catherine de Medici. And Elizabeth is not a power behind the throne in any sort of um, very visible way. Um, and she's not a sovereign queen. What she is, is a queen consort, the queen consort of Spain, which means that she's the wife of the king of Spain. In this case, Philip II, who I think you know well, because <laughs> he used to be, you know, for a short period of time, the, the, the king, I guess you could say, of, of, of England when he was married to Mary Tudor. So Elizabeth is his third wife after Mary Tudor. And she's a wife, that's what she is. She's a consort, that's her job. Um, but she does manage to influence Philip in these sort of subtle ways, um, trained by her mother, uh, who's sort of doing this education completely through correspondence. Um, now, the thing about Elizabeth that is uh, particularly important to this book is that uh, She's married by the time she's 13 years old. She arrives in Spain at the age of 14. And this, of course, is not uncommon at all for royal women at the time. Um, they're just teenagers. And in fact, they're, they're very young teenagers, really just kind of children. And so through Elizabeth's life, you, you kind of get a sense of what it must have been like for lots of royal women or aristocratic women um, at the time, what that was like to go through marriage and adolescence and puberty all at the same time and have to do that while at the same time carrying a certain amount of political burdens on your shoulder. So when I'm telling um, Elizabeth de Valois' story in this book, that's really what I'm focusing on. I'm focusing on the ways in which she's sort of representative of this um, young sort of quintessentially adolescent and female experience in the Renaissance. God, that's hard work, isn't it? To be a, <laughs> they say it's hard to be a kid these days. Is that cheap? Is that's, <laughs> that's pretty heavy. Seriously. Yes. Yes. No. And, and I think there's a way in which sometimes, you know, when, when you encounter these women, um, you forget how young they were. Yeah when they're doing all these things, I think it might have something to do with the way we write history or how we think of history uh, or how we think of the distant past. It's like everyone's a grown up. But um, mm. with Elizabeth in particular, you know, some of the texts that are that are written about her, um, 
you know, by diplomats at the time or ladies in waiting, they kind of reveal actually how young she was. They talk about, you know, that she was still playing with toys or that, you know, she's still growing. <laughs> she, yeah. she hasn't, you know, reached her full height yet. They've had to adjust her clothes, these things. And that's when you remember, oh, yeah, she's just a kid. Yeah, God, it's, it's, when you get, it's because they have title, Catherine de Valois. I expect her to have impressive gowns and be indomitable, but she, she's well, playing she, with And dolls. she does. She has impressive gowns, actually, yeah. right? And, 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 yeah. and that's, you know, when I was reading about some of her impressive gowns, I was thinking, but wait, she's not even full grown. She's little mm. and she has to wear this, these gowns that are covered with jewels that must have been so heavy and so uncomfortable. Um, yeah. 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 So I think, again, like we there's something maybe because they were royal and, you know, there's this effort both in their time and in our time to kind of really describe them as such to not sort mm. of diminish them, you know, um, when even contemporaries are writing about them, that makes them seem older than they actually are. Mm. Yeah. So like a respect thing. Yeah. They're still that person, even if they're yes. six. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. So you said there that um, Elizabeth is the one that actually sort of inspired the book. So why was it that, I guess, these, why these three, but also actually why three queens? Why not just, I guess, Elizabeth or just Catherine or just Mary? Why the three queens? Okay, uh, there are so many answers to this. So I'm going to just start in one place and you know, hopefully hit um, all the thoughts. So, uh, you know, back when I was a professor, I wrote a more scholarly book with a colleague about Catherine de' Medici. She had always really fascinated me because she has such a terrible reputation. <laughs> mm. Catherine has this very nefarious reputation as a poisoner, as, you know, someone who's Machiavellian and power hungry and ambitious. And, uh, I was a scholar of the French Renaissance, so you can't avoid Catherine, right? She just keeps showing up one way or the other. And so this this, this sort of evil queen uh, idea was really interesting to me. So I, I had written this other book, and in the course of writing that book, I had seen her correspondence with her daughter, Elizabeth de Valois, which really started when Elizabeth moves to Spain. And um, that was such an interesting correspondence, in part because it was so one-sided. Like, I had seen a lot of letters by Catherine, but I, I wasn't really seeing a lot of replies by Elizabeth. But I thought there had to be these replies. Mm. And so, um, you know, I decided I wanted to, to work on that a little bit more. And I, you know, I went off to Paris, and I'm in the archives, and I'm looking um, for these letters. And I'm also looking kind of around um, around what's going on in Spain at this time, looking at other primary texts. And um, and I found some letters. And, and those were the letters where I, I could kind of see how, how young she was. Um, oh. and, I, and I also could see that actually she had a lot of health problems, uh, which were spelled out in kind of minute details, which is kind of, it, it's unusual for the time that we still have those letters. I mean, a lot of people <laughs> had health problems. A lot of people were ill. But we've lost a lot of those le letters. But what I found was this sort of well-documented, you know, kind of a trove of letters that sort of spelled out her her physical condition. And, and that's in those letters, I could see both that she had this chronic illness, but also that she was undergoing regular problems that one has in adolescence. And 
you know, that's when I thought, oh my gosh, this is a teen queen. This is a teenage queen. You know, I think we should say more about this. Um, so originally I was going to write a biography of Elizabeth of Valois, and then the project started to expand. Um, it was going to be Elizabeth, then it was going to be Elizabeth and her mother, Catherine. And then in that same, you know, uh, trove of letters, I, I started to see something else. Um, I could see that Catherine and Elizabeth and some of the people in their respective entourages were writing repeatedly about Mary Queen of Scots and they were kind of plotting against her. And that's when I remembered, I had to kind of reach back into, you know, my history. Oh yeah, you know, Mary Queen of Scots was Catherine's daughter-in-law and had grown up at the court of France. And then when I looked a little further, I, I, I learned that in fact, Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth of Valois had been very close childhood friends. In fact, they share a bedchamber when Mary first comes to France. So they all knew each other intimately. So the project expanded to, to, to three queens. But one of the things that, um, that interested me, you know, I, I started to work on the project and I, I thought, you know, what I was gonna do was this sort of intimate, very woman-focused, female-focused point of view, you know, portrait of these three queens. But as I started to develop that, the other thread that came into it is that I could see that even though these women were different kinds of queens, like a queen mother, a queen consort, and a sovereign queen, and even though they were in different kingdoms, they kept coming up against the same challenges. Sometimes those challenges had, had different iter iterations or different manifestations, or they looked a little bit different but they all seem to have something to do with the fact that they were both female or they were all female and, and very young, like teenagers mm. um, or young women who were fertile. Mm. So even though there are three different queens and three different kingdoms and three different you know statuses of queens, they all had to grapple with the challenge of being young and female um, in their respective courts. So they, they offered a kind of a, a nice test case of the relationship between gender and power in this time period. Mm. So that's how the project eventually evolved and, and that's what it became. Yeah, I can see how the, the sort of the mission creep as you start to expand it mm. and the, how, the way in the 16th century you've got so many really prominent women and there are others obviously in the book, obviously in England we've got Elizabeth I, there's Mary's mother, Mary de Guise. And I guess also maybe this time period there's so much better evidence than if it had been like 100 years ago. Well, and, and I think, you know, something you just said it rings true. There, there are a lot of very powerful women in this time, but maybe it's just that we can see them a little bit better, right, during mm, this yeah. time. I, you know, I don't know that there was anything particularly new. Obviously, there were extremely powerful women in the 15th century or earlier in the, in the 16th century, too, like Marguerite de Navarre, for instance, and um, this is Francis I, France's sister, and her mother, Louise de Savoie. It's just that now we're we're like kind of seeing it more, and we've preserved more of the archive, you know, that reveals just how how powerful they were. Um, can I ask a really basic question? That I think I've always wanted to ask a historian. <laughs> when you say you found these letters, do, do, are they archived like a regular library? You can say I want to see these, and just dusty letters come up in the lift. Okay, no, they're not as dusty. <laughs> 
<laughs> as you think, I mean, sometimes that stuff, you know, does show up, uh, not usually already in a library, although sometimes, right, you'll just find this, or I shouldn't say you just, it, it you know, these, these sort of misfiled, you know, letters yeah. or books or whatever will be found. It's more just that the, the, the collected letters or the texts in question have been ignored um, mm. or understudied. So in the case of Elizabeth de Valois, for instance, what had happened is a 19th century editor in France, and I, I just love these 19th century editors, honestly, <laughs> we owe so much to them. They preserved so much. They were heroic. Mm. But anyways, a 19th century editor had the notebook of the Bishop of Limoges, who was the ambassador, the French ambassador to Spain during the reign of Elizabeth Valois. And for whatever reason, that notebook with letters, all sorts of documents, memos had been preserved. So the 19th century editor, you know, he, he went and he transcribed all the letters and he did an edition and it's, it's called, you know, negotiation, the negotiations under um, the reign of Francis II. So, like, there's nothing in the title that necessarily makes uh, you, hmm. you know, understand what this is. And other people, of course, you know, ha have looked at this. But one of the particular things that is interesting, and there were scholars who who had looked at this, so I don't want to say that I was the first, um, but maybe, you know, I kind of brought it in, um, uh, into a narrative history that was more destined for the general public. Um, the thing that interested me it was in those letters was how much talk there was of Elizabeth of Valois health and particularly her menstrual cycle, <laughs> which, you know, a 19th century editor, male editor, wasn't necessarily <laughs> going to be particularly that interested in that particular topic. Edited. Right, <laughs> <Yeah>. exactly. Or, <laughs> yeah. or it's there, but he's just not going to talk about it that much. Um, yeah. And then other scholars afterwards wouldn't have necessarily seen any sort of political imp importance that was interesting to them. So, so that's how I think how these things shift a little bit is that often the evidence or the story is right there, right in front of you. It's just, it hasn't really been brought out in the same way. It's a slightly different story than what's been told before. Yeah. When you look at it, look at the same history with a different lens, you're looking, all of a sudden there's different clues. There that's are. Cool. Yes. And then to, to your point though, Sometimes there are these archived um, manuscript letters that just haven't been studied. You know, they haven't been edited. They haven't been looked at closely. And I looked at those two, you know, manuscript letters that just, wow. you know. Um, and actually, I don't know if you know this, but very recently, there was a kind of amazing rediscovery of Mary Queen of Scots letters, which she wrote from prison in England, that were all in code. And these amateur cryptologists just decoded them. And they were, they had been filed in the Bibliothèque Nationale in these sort of random volumes with, again, titles that were entirely misleading with other letters that were from Italy <laughs> or uh. somewhere else in Europe. And they were in code. So, you know, no one really looks at them because no one deciphered the code. And finally, have, these have they? Mm. now they have, they just have, they've just figured it out. That these were all Mary Queen of Scots's letters. And so now these cryptologists, these amateur cryptologists, and when I say amateur, I just mean that they have other day jobs, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they are really good cryptologists. 
are going through and they're decoding all these letters and they're working with a team to transcribe them and there's going to be an addition. But again, you know, like this, this evidence is often, it's there, like right under our nose. Wow. We just, that we just don't know what we're looking at. Yeah. God, what's she going to say in that? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that should, that's the sort of thing. I've had, that should be uh, serialized every day in the newspaper or something. What should, yes. What's the next yes. letter? Yes, exactly. So oh, I really hope something, you know, really juicy yeah. comes up in there. That would be fabulous. <laughs> oh, that's so exciting. <laughs> right. So, you know, you should, you should never think that there's the, la- the last word has been said. Mm. Right? Yeah. That's almost yeah. never true. There's always something mm. new to say. So looking at the, uh, the Queens in a bit more uh, detail, actually one of the things I quite liked about the book is the way that you really get so much. We talked about the different, you said about the different types of queenship, like queen regnant, queen mother, queen consort, mm-hmm. but also all of the different sort of nationalities that are brought into the story. Like we've got Mary, who's queen of Scots, but then goes to France, um, Elizabeth de Valois, but she's actually then ultimately the queen of Spain. But then Catherine de Medici, who is very famous obviously as Mm. this french figure but is also part of this incredibly famous italian dynasty Mm -hmm. and has this actually really very interesting childhood in italy as well that's quite dramatic so so what's catherine's journey to becoming queen of france yes um so right she is the scion of the medici she's sort of the last remaining um heir on the senior uh branch of the medici so unfortunately, she was a girl. I think everyone in her family was hoping she'd be a boy because then it would be obvious that she could become ruler of Florence. But she was a girl. And unfortunately, her parents both die within weeks of her birth. So that creates a little bit of a power vacuum. Um, her distant relative, who we'll just call her uncle, because that's what he liked to call himself, <laughs> was the Medici Pope. Uh, actually, there were two. First, uh, there was Leo X, who was the Pope when she was um, just born. And then later on, um, the more relevant Pope for her for her journey is Clement VII. And these are both Medici Popes. So Catherine is really useful as a child because even though she's a girl, she still represents the senior line of the Medici. So she's still a Medici who kind of embodies um uh, the Medici hold on Florence, right? Um, and the thing about the Medici is that, like any powerful family in Europe at the time, they always have enemies and they always have people who kind of want to oust them from um, controlling Florence and take their place. So uh, this really comes to pass for Catherine uh, when she's about eight years old, partially because. Um, her uncle, Clement VII, has been taken a kind of political hostage in Rome. And there is a much bigger backdrop to this, which is uh, the generations-long series of wars called the Italian Wars between France and Spain. France and Spain were really locked in this conflict for territories in Italy um, from the late 15th century until the mid-16th century. So in one of the uh, many, many battles or iterations of the Italian wars, uh, Spain prevails and um, for a host of reasons, namely that Charles V was pretty sure that Clement VII was um, allying with France instead of with him, 
he holds Clement a political hostage. And that gives um, Medici enemies in Florence the chance to pounce because they realize that Clement VII in Rome can't really do anything to hold um, the Medici, uh, to keep the Medici in power in Florence. So these enemies um, are of the Medici, what they really want is a republic in Florence. Um, so they form a, a kind of Republican council. Mm-hmm. And they, yes, it was short-lived. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, they go and uh, they find Catherine, who's in hiding with her aunt at the time, and they take her hostage. And she's just a little girl. She's eight years old. Mm-hmm. And she is put in a series of convents, and she finally ends up in a Benedictine convent called Le Murate, where she's held hostage for three years. And she, she was very comfortable. And those nuns really did take care of her, even if some of them were supporters of the Republican Council. She was just a little girl and, you know, mm. they, they felt bad for her. But it was definitely, I mean, Catherine seems to have been very aware that she was a political prisoner. Now, one of the things that's interesting about Catherine's childhood, at least to a historian, is how much we don't actually know about her, because at the time she she is she's a daughter of the Medici, but she's just a girl. She's she's only half royal. Uh, her mother was a French pr- princess, distantly related to the French royal family. But her father is a Medici, and he's so he's a commoner. It's not really clear to anybody that she's going to play any sort of political importance, uh, hmm. you know, you, you, then or later in life. So the documentation is a little bit sparse. But from the extant documentation we do have, it does seem clear that Catherine <clears throat> knew that she was a political prisoner, even at the age of eight, nine, and ten. Um, and that she was very fearful living in this convent. She never knew day to day what was going to happen. Well, eventually, Clement gets released from his uh, his imprisonment. He makes amends with Spain, and together they, uh, you know, turn their forces on Florence to restore Medici rule. So the Republic is, you know, ousted. Uh, there are lots of ex- executions, lots of banishments, and the Medici come back into power. And at that point, um, shortly thereafter, let's see, Catherine is about 11 years old when she is released from her own um, imprisonment, uh, for lack of a better word, from the convent. Her uncle arranges for her to marry um, the second son of the French king. And this is very much a political marriage, as they all were. The idea was that Francis I, the French king, um, in marrying his second son to Catherine, would get her dowry, including uh, several territories in Italy, which he had been eyeing for years. So these, a lot of these political marriages, certainly in the first half of the century, are very much about power play. They're, they're, they're very much wrapped up in these Italian wars um, and the efforts by the various monarchs, you know, in in France and Spain, also in England, to you know expand their empire. So yeah, and it's an incredible story just for Catherine just to get to that point to be married to the French prince. It's sort of weird as well because I guess the Medici is one of those names that will sort of jump out at people and think, oh wow, the Medici. But actually, when she goes to France, from their perspective, like you said, her father is just seen as a commoner, so she's not royal. So actually, it's sort of sneered at a bit, isn't it, when she comes? 
Well, she is. So, I, but you know, I, I think about this. I, I've thought about this question for a, a long time, and um, there's no definitive answer. But I, I do think that we have to keep it as a question. So, like to, to revisit the genealogy a little bit, Catherine is, you know, she's Italian and she's a Medici on her father's side, but on her mother's side, she is descended from a French royal princess, uh, one who Francis the First, you know, considers a cousin. Um, Madeleine de la Tour d'Auvergne is her name. She's the Countess of Boulogne. This is a very, very noble family. This is a this is a very close uh, a family that's very close to the royal house of France. So on her mother's side, Catherine, it you know has a very exalted bloodline, and there is a certain amount of evidence um, that Catherine had always sort of prized her French heritage. She doesn't learn or begin learning to to, uh, to write in French, at least. I mean, I don't, you can never know about speaking, but write in French until she's about 12 when her marriage is, is contracted. But that doesn't mean that she isn't aware of her French roots. And in fact, the Medici were very proud of, of the marriage between Madeleine de la Tour d'Auvergne and um, Lorenzo II uh, de Medici, which is, these were Catherine's parents, because they, they pushed, the Med that marriage pushed the Medici um, closer to, to a throne. I mean, one of the things that the Medici always want is they, they want to be noble. <laughs> they're so rich, right? They're so rich and they're very powerful, but they're not noble. And that's kind of, they have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder because of it. And, and that's the thing that's missing. So, so Catherine in some ways embodies their desires. It really seems plausible to me that Catherine would have known a lot about her French family, even as a child. Um, she was an orphan, but she did have other Medici relatives. And I'm sure that they told her about who she was yeah. um, descended from. And then um, she's also develops quite a nice little relationship with her, one of her maternal uncles through marriage. Sorry, it gets Gosh. so, it gets so complicated <laughs> because of these marriages, but you know, everyone was aware of who was married to whom and what everyone's relationship mm. was. So her mother's um, brother-in-law, who was also their cousin, <laughs> uh, <of course. laughs> was John Stuart Duke of Albany, right? He's actually a very important uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, figure yeah. In, in Scottish history. Maybe the lover, right? The lover of Margaret mm. Tudor. Okay. But he was also, he was also uh, very tied in to the French aristocracy. He really thought of himself as French in some ways. Um, and he was Catherine de Medici's uncle. And even when she was in that prison, in Florence, in the in the Benedictine convent, she's corresponding um, with with the Duke of Albany, and he's sending messengers to Florence to see how she's doing to make sure that she's still okay. So again, like there are there is this evidence of these sorts of ties that she would have been aware of, you know, these sort of French ties. So when she gets to uh, France, she sometimes was sneered at um but i often wonder how much if we're putting too much weight on that in the histories i wonder sometimes if that insult is kind of trotted out or was trotted out at opportune moments but wasn't necessarily 
the trait or the quality that really defined Catherine as a young woman at the French court. Partially because of her mother's inheritance, um, you know, the French side of her family. And then also the fact that, uh, you know, sort of Italians are kind of the arbiters of of taste <laughs> in the mm-hmm. Renaissance, you know, in the court of Francis I, you know, Francis is really trying to emulate Italy. He, he really sees them as the tastemakers of the time. He himself has some Italian blood. He's very interested in, you know, bringing Italian art and architecture into France. He was Leonardo da Vinci's last patron. He brought Leonardo da Vinci to Amboise. So in France is kind of like he he very much liked Catherine because she is Italian. (laughs) So it's not necessarily a bad thing um, for her to be Italian, but it does come up now and again. Mm. But I think when when things when there's tension. You know, when things are fraught, mm. it's like an available, it's a way of insulting her that's available. Mm. Mm. So because Catherine's problems then, something like you say, that maybe that's where like the juicy quote will come out that obviously this drawings will then leap upon. But actually her problem yes. isn't the fact that she's Italian. Ultimately, it's the fact that she for a while doesn't seem to be able to have children. Yes, yes. Absolutely. And I think that's so well put, like, that's her real problem, not this Italian thing. And um, yes, it's 10 years. So when she first gets married, she's 14. And, you know, it's quite common for teenagers in these marriages to not necessarily have a child for a few years. It takes a while for both Mm. parties to mature. Mm. Um, So I don't think the pressure was really on for the first couple of years. But um, Henry, her husband, he was a second son. He was not originally the heir to the French throne. But when Henry's older brother dies, Henry becomes the heir to the throne. And so there's more pressure on Catherine to bear the child who will, you know, continue the mm. dynasty. And she can't do it. It takes her, it takes her 10 years. Finally, she does. And it, and it does seem like the problem is actually Henry's. <laughs> mm. uh, some sort of, you know, a, a physiological problem with Henry. But of course, she's blamed as mm. women often are um, in the time. But luckily for her, she does eventually have a child and that first child is a boy. So it's a win. It's a win-win. Brilliant. That showed them. <laughs> exactly. And then she goes on to have 10 children in short order. So yeah. <laughs> that, then she really showed them. <laughs> yeah. So awful, isn't it? The, the pressure these people were under to mm. have children. The last thing you need is pressure. Right. So Catherine's now got children, and one of whom, of course, is uh, the daughter Elizabeth. And then also coming into uh, the household in France is Mary, Queen of Scots. So how does she come to be in France? Mary is the daughter of James V and his French wife, Mary of Guise, or Marie de Guise. Whenever I say their names, I I usually, I just think of the French names. (laughs) So I will (laughs) automatically use those if that's okay. And, you know, James V famously died within days of Mary's birth. So she becomes the sovereign queen of Scotland at the age of nine days. Um, And England, which, you know, had always coveted Scotland, they go after Scotland while she's this baby queen. So Henry VIII... What's he up to? Wages war, yeah, wages war against Scotland. It's known as the rough wooing. What he wants is for Mary to to eventually marry to marry his son Edward, 
Um, and he's hoping through marriage to appropriate the Scottish crown. He dies, and then Edward continues these rough wooings. And Mary's mother, Marie de Guise, has no intention of letting Mary marry into England's throne. And so what she eventually decides to do is to send her daughter. She makes a deal with Henry II, who by then is king of France. Um, she makes a deal with him to send Mary at the age of five to France to be raised in the French court with the soft understanding that she will eventually marry Henry's son, uh, the future Francis II. But it's France in, in particular because that was the kingdom that her mother came from. And it's also Catholic. While England is Protestant and Marie de Guise was Catholic, and so she did not want to send her daughter to any place that smacked of Protestantism, and so Mary ends up in France. So it's sort of similar-ish in a way to Catherine in that you've got the, the French mother lose the father early on. Mary still has a mother, obviously, but then end up in France, which sort of becomes their... And I guess, does, does Mary become... Is she sort of more French, ultimately, than Scottish? Uh, there, yeah, I think I think so. And, and it is interesting that, uh, you know, what you point out, that, that Catherine and Mary have these sort of similar... Um, circumstances that take them to France, and and I and I do make that point. I, I think in the book that in some ways you would imagine that Catherine would have a lot of sympathy for Mary, and I think earlier on she does, but eventually that changes. Mary, in terms of the Frenchness, you know, I, again, I think this is where it's really helpful to think back to what a five-year-old is like <laughs> you know how, how these five-year-olds are kind of sponges she's at the court of france she's raised in the french royal nursery with the french royal children this is done on purpose because henry ii wanted her to think of herself as french and that was actually also very important to mary's french family the guises they are very interested in maneuvering Mary into this coveted position of Queen Consort of France because it, it would further their own careers at the French court. You know, they're very ambitious and it would bring them, you know, very, very close to the French crown. So they are also very invested in um, having Mary grow up feeling French, feeling attached to the kingdom and to this um, to the French royal family. You know, on some level, even if they hadn't been that invested, I just don't see how Mary wouldn't have thought of herself as French because <laughs> she's there, you know, that's the language that's spoken. Those are the customs that are followed. So in some ways, there was there was no avoiding it. You know, Mary, the, the moment she stepped foot on French shores, Mary was on the path to becoming culturally, intellectually, very much a French woman. So at this point, then, we've got the three of them all together, we've got Catherine as the uh, Queen Consort of France, her daughter Elizabeth, as you said, sharing bedchamber with Mary. So, like, do we know much about the relationship of the three of them at this, this point, where they're all sort of under one roof or lots of very elaborate roofs together? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're together and they're not together. They're all in France. They're all technically at the French court. But the children, Elizabeth and Mary, are in one place, the French royal nursery, which is separate from sort of the main palace because um, the adults wanted to keep the children safe, keep them free of disease and, and things like that. So they, they raised them in a, uh, in a separate nursery. But 
from what you know, we can tell Catherine was quite um, a doting mother, and uh, took her her mothering uh, quite seriously, both for her own children and the other children, sort of under her protection, and th and that included Mary, Queen of Scots. So Mary does have a mother, Mary of Guise, but Mary of Guise is still in Scotland. She has these other French relatives, the Guises. Um, her grandmother, Antoinette de Bourbon, is a very powerful force. So is her um, aunt, uh, her Guise aunt, Anne d'Este. Um, but Catherine also seems to be a very prominent kind of mothering figure to Mary at the time. And because Elizabeth and Mary seem to be close, um, and, and I say that with a little bit of a qualification, Mary is about three years older than Elizabeth. So I think it's a little bit more like a big sister sort of situation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, there, there were lots of opportunities for Mary to be with Catherine. And to all evidence, Catherine taught Mary a lot of the embroidery that that Mary would come to love. Uh, you know, one of Mary's habits mm -hmm. that she will carry all through the rest of her life is her love of embroidery. And a lot of that seems to have come from Catherine. And the, the letters that we have from young Mary uh, show us uh, definitely um, a respect for Catherine. It, it, you know, it's hard to say whether what love always looks like in the period, partially because mm -hmm. the language sometimes um, can be a little bit formal, even among children. You know, it's often a language of respect and, and sort of loyalty. Uh, filial piety rather than the sort of sentimental affection, you know, that that mm. we would use maybe in our letters. But Catherine really, uh, I'm sorry, Mary really did seem to admire and respect Catherine. And Catherine really did seem to to be kind of smitten with her. Everyone was a little taken with the with the young Mary Queen of Scots and, and mm. Catherine was no exception. So, you know, when the girls are small, that does seem to be a very um, tight-knit, warm, and affectionate little group. So much so that when the nursery is dissolved about the time that um, Elizabeth is eight, so Mary's about 11, Catherine seems to have presumed that Mary would come to live with her along with the French royal princesses. But... It was at that point that the Guises decide, no, Mary needs her own household. She's a queen regnant. She's of higher status than the French princesses, even a higher status than Catherine herself. She needs her own household. And it, it might have been right around that time where the relationship starts to get more fraught. Um, because that's a little bit of a dig. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that Mary's not going to go live with Catherine. Catherine, living with Catherine would be beneath her. And there's this sort of weird dynamic as well, I suppose, where obviously Mary is or becomes Catherine's daughter-in-law, but the future is obviously the intention is that Mary will replace Catherine. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, often you hear talk of that dynamic between fathers and sons, between kings and their heirs, right? Like that they can never really love each other. There's always this distrust and this discord. But you make an excellent point that, you know, that's probably going to be the case too, to some degree, or that could be the case mm. between one queen consort and the one who's, you know, set to take her place. Also, because the whole thing is so ominous, right? Like <laughs> the, the way that Mary takes Catherine's place is if Catherine's husband dies.
and that feels like a real turning point. And I suppose obviously they will at some point going to sort of have to go in their separate ways anyway. But it's such a sort of shocking and unexpected death for Henry the Second. It really seems to be the point at which the three lives, well, they're still very much connected, but that family unit seems to separate and go off yes because it starts to dissolve almost physically within months right like they're no longer together in france they're going to start to go their separate ways so yes if we back up if henry hadn't died so he dies when he's about 40 he dies in this terrible jousting accident that as you say was unexpected henry's healthy at the time of his death uh so there wasn't like a history of disease or anything that suggested that maybe you know they should get Mary and her son and her and her husband, um, France, the future Francis II, ready to take the throne anytime soon. But he dies after this terrible jousting accident. And Mary and Francis, the new king, Francis II, are are very young. Um, they are, you know, 17 and 15 years old, and they're entirely unprepared uh, to take the throne. I think what they had thought was that there was going to be time to grow up, you know, that Henry II was going to reign for a good long while. Um, Francis and Mary were going to come into their own. Francis would be able to learn how to rule Scotland as Mary's husband with Henry II looking over his shoulder, you know, telling him what to do. And that this would all be in place by the time that Francis II had to take over as King of France. But of course, it doesn't happen that way at all. So uh, Francis and Mary become the king and queen consort of France. But that joust also happens um, around another very important event. And that is the marriage of Elizabeth de Valois to Philip II. And that marriage is very politically important because it marks the end of the Italian Wars, this long-standing rivalry between France and Spain. Now, in theory, there's this new peace. If all had gone as planned, Henry II would have taken Elizabeth to the border. Philip would have picked her up. <laughs> France and Spain would have been fast friends. All would have been good, and it would have gone forward. But that's not what happens. Henry II dies, and suddenly no one knows if the peace treaty between France and Spain will hold. So Catherine delays sending Elizabeth to to Spain for a little while. She doesn't want to let her go. Elizabeth's, well, she's not quite 14. She seems to already have some health problems. It's pretty clear she's not really menstruating yet. Not really. So technically, she's not really ready to be a bride physically. Catherine herself is so distraught. She really loved Henry II. And so she's just completely uh, torn to pieces by his death. She's also incredibly worried for her son, Francis II, who now is you know, the king and has no idea what he's doing. So the idea of sending Elizabeth to Spain is just not something that she's prepared to deal with. So she manages to keep Elizabeth in France with her for a few months, but then Philip starts to get very nervous, anxious. You know, uh, he also isn't sure if the peace treaty between France and Spain will hold. And one way to secure it is to actually get his bride, right? Like if mm-hmm. France sends the sends the new queen, that's a good faith gesture that they are interested in holding this peace. 
So he, first he drops a few hints, and finally he makes it pretty clear that they better send Elizabeth and soon. So, you know, by November, um, a few months after Henry II's death, Catherine has no choice but to send Elizabeth to Spain. Um, and so she does. And so that is when that that triangle, that trio of Catherine, Elizabeth and Mary first starts to break up. It breaks up physically, um, but it also starts to break up a little bit emotionally and then a lot emotionally and politically as well, because when Mary, Queen of Scots and her husband, Francis II, become king and queen of France, Mary's uncles her Guise uncles, this ambitious French family, swoop in and and become the power. You know, the, they, they kind of, they really become uh, the powers behind the throne. And Catherine doesn't love this. So, you know, right then the divisions start to lay themselves down. Um, she sees the Guises taking control of her son and of Mary. She sees Mary as really kind of an agent and, uh, you know, this, this sort of loyal follower, follower of the Guises and Catherine's mistrust. If it had started, you know, before then, it definitely starts to amplify during the reign of Francis II. Which actually isn't a very long reign, unfortunately, for Francis and thus for Mary. So I think it's only about a year, isn't it, or something that he's... It's, it's 18 months. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he dies young. So then Mary is now sort of cast adrift. In fact, she does. Obviously, they don't have any children together. So Mary isn't queen mother. She now doesn't actually have a any role in France anymore. No. And you know, I I want to quickly say something about the fact that they have no children. Can can we talk about that yeah, for sure, a second? Yeah. Mm. Okay. So you know, that also is something that you know, had she had a child, things would have gone potentially quite differently. Um, she could have stayed in France. She actually had the option to stay in France um, even without a child. But had she had a baby who would be, you know, if it had been a boy, the, the future king of France or the king of France, she would have had more of an argument to stay in France. But she doesn't. And there's been a lot of sort of uh, scholarly speculation about that, about why they don't have children, you know. Francis was supposedly too immature and they kind of knew that he wouldn't be able to have children. There's, you know, a lot of rumors that he was physically deformed. Oh. Um, and, you know, there, there, there's just like a lot of uh, hearsay and rumors about their inability to have a child. But, um, you know, I was recently speaking with someone. There's also been studies that suggest that children who are raised together <laughs> almost like brother and sister hmm. can't really consummate a marriage you know it's almost impossible because they just don't see each other in that hmm. way and that's exactly what had happened with um with mary and francis they were raised together um in the french nursery in fact they were very good friends from the time they were very little five and four and uh so maybe you know they just they really could never sleep together because they thought of each other as friends or as siblings, you know, not really as um, as sexual partners. Anyways, just wanted to... <laughs> things can get worse for her. <laughs> yes, well, you know, the, actually, you know, Mary has a terrible life, I will say. It, yeah. it, it's, it, it, it's, not a, it's not a good life um, in, in, in many ways. It's, it's quite sad. 
anyways, so she doesn't have the child. And um, she's 18 years old. She's widowed. She's technically still um, quite viable as a bride on the dynastic marriage market. Uh, Maybe a little bit of a notch down because she was already married once, but not really. She's only 18. And she does kind of hang around France for a while. And I think, you know, the idea was that I think both Mary and her Guise family were hoping that another marriage would materialize. Um, I think that she was not prepared, nor did she want to go back to Scotland and rule it on her own. (laughs) That's just not something that she was really cut out for. I think she had been raised to think that someone would always be helping her if not doing it entirely for her. And she actually saw a model of that uh, in a number of different ways. First first was her mother, who was essentially ruling Scotland for her when she was a younger child. And then once she gets married, it's her husband and her father-in-law and and her Guise uncles. And then once her father-in-law dies, her husband and her Guise uncles who are doing this for her. So, you know, she not only fell into the habit, but was sort of raised to think that this is how it should be done. I mean, she was a woman after all. And the assumption was that her more powerful husband um, would would do this for her, would rule Scotland for her. So she kind of tarries in France for a little while. She doesn't want to go back. But the marriage that she desired doesn't really materialize. And the Scots are calling, they're kind of asking, when are we getting our queen back? <laughs> so she does, so she goes back to Scotland um, to take up take up the you know the reins there, no pun intended, but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but all the while she's starting to think, I mean, she does have this sort of you know period of mourning and recovery, but then you know she she does eventually start looking for another marriage with the hopes again that a man is eventually going to do this for her. That does explain why she goes for such idiots, <laughs> like really overbearing men. Or maybe yeah, just well, men were overbearing then. Hmm. Well, I, the, the, the thing that she really wants um, is she wants to marry the heir to Spain. That's what she really wants. She twa- tries twice. Don Carlos, this is Philip II's son. Um, and uh, I think the idea is that, you know, she wants something very similar to what she had with Francis II. And, you know, if not France, the next best thing was going to be Spain. If she was married to Don Carlos, Philip II would help her run Scotland and then eventually Don Carlos. Uh, But she's thwarted in those attempts by none other than Catherine de' Medici with the help of Elizabeth de Valois. So that's when the plot thickens. (laughs) And that's when you start to see this plotting, yeah, against, Mm. against Mary. Yeah, and I was going to say, and that's why you can say, I guess, why if you sort of started initially with just Catherine Elizabeth, but why sort of Mary sort of inescapably mm. becomes a key part of that story. Because, like you said, it sort of feels like Mary's this sort of wild card almost that just keeps getting put on the table and then everyone has to try and figure out what to do about right, Mary. Right, yeah. So in my research, yeah. I, kept, um, I kept tagging certain things as, I called it the Mary problem. Like, like whenever she would sort of crop up and, you know, create a little bit of a political problem because of a bad decision she made or, you know, something she really wanted or, you know, the way she was just sort of getting involved and messing things up. 
I would just tag it, the Mary problem, the Mary problem. <laughs> because that's how it increasingly it started to look to Catherine and Elizabeth, that she was sort of a thorn in mm. their side. And it's funny, obviously, because we sort of usually come at it from the English perspective, and obviously it's the Mary problem for Elizabeth I in England as this sort of rival claimant and all that sort of thing. It's fascinating that, like you said, on the one hand, Scotland's kind of the a bit of a backwater, and yet you've got France and Spain and England all kind of obsessing over... <laughs> What to do with yes, this one person? With this one person who, and it's also very much what to do with Scotland. In some ways, mm. in that way, Mary is kind of an embodiment of her kingdom. Um, and one of the ways in which she's a thorn in Catherine's side is that, you know, as I said, Scotland and France had been allied for quite a while, and France sees Scotland as, you know, an outpost, and um, but an important one, an important one to have for all sorts of, you know, political and military and strategic reasons. And when Mary starts to become more interested in the English crown, right? She she's mm. interested in the succession. Um, she seems to be making more moves to try to create a, a good relationship with England. And certainly her Protestant nobles in Scotland are interested in having her do that. But that would mean turning away from France. Mm. And so Catherine doesn't want that. <laughs> you know, Scotland's supposed to remain loyal to France. So um, Mary's quest for the English succession was actually a huge issue for Catherine. It's not just a it's not just a you know Scottish English thing, and and I think that sometimes you know we're, we're still very much the product of the nineteenth century. We kind of think of ourselves in these sort of separate nations, you know, um, that are kind of siloed in a way. But in some ways, the Renaissance, the early modern period is very global and everything is interconnected, right? In part because these women are, you know, moving around from place mm. to place, creating all these alliances between all these different kingdoms. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the rivalry or the relationship, the on again, off again friendship between England and Scotland has enormous implications for France. And that has enormous implications for Spain and so on and so forth. So it's all interconnected. Mm. And so what's the, we've got obviously Catherine and her suspicions of Mary and she, as she said, she thwarts Mary's efforts to try and uh, marry Philip's son. So is that because of the fact that her daughter is there as Queen of Spain? Does she see Mary as a threat to Elizabeth? Or is it more France generally, or is it sort of the combination of the two? Things? It's a combination of the two. Uh, you know, she's worried, Catherine is worried that if Mary um, marries, uh, that, I'm sorry, uh, that always makes me laugh. When Mary marries. <laughs> Mary marries. But, <laughs> <laughs> if Mary marries Don Carlos, that um, that is going to empower the Guises. So uh, when Mary leaves for Scotland, um, the next king of France is. Uh, the little Charles the Ninth. He's 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 ten years old. <laughs> he's a child. Mm -hmm. So at that point, um, Catherine assumes the regency. She's not given the name uh, regent. She's called the gouvernante, like the female governor. But she's in regent and all that name. That's that everyone knows that that's what she's that, that what she, that's what she is. Mm -hmm. And by this point, Catherine does not trust the Guises. France is really on um, sort of the precipice of civil war between Protestants and Catholics. And Catherine is trying to mediate between these two factions, whereas the Guises are very pro-Catholic, increasingly so as the years go. 
And, you know, even though there are some attempts to kind of come to some sort of resolution so that the two groups can live in harmony, increasingly, you know, the, the Guises really just want to get rid of French Protestants. So Catherine is worried that if, um, well, she's worried about civil war. She's worried that that's going to uh, disempower the French monarchy entirely, especially because her son is just a little boy. Um, she's just wor worried that, you know, all hell is going to break loose and it's just going to become havoc and the monarchy will never recover. So um, sh what she's worried is that if Mary marries Don Carlos, the Guises are going to have the power of Spain, Spanish coin and Spanish armies behind their efforts to eradicate French Protestants. And this makes perfect sense because uh, Philip is, he's Catholic. As you know, Philip II is Catholic and he is a fierce Catholic. He has no patience for anything that smacks of heresy. He does not understand um, Catherine's efforts at toleration, right? Her, her conciliatory efforts. Um, so he seems almost ready to support uh, the Guises. So if there is this marriage between mm. Mary, Queen of Scots, and um, and Don Carlos, uh, there will be a new alliance between the Guises and Spain. She also does tell Elizabeth that um, if Mary marries Don Carlos, then Elizabeth is no longer going to be the first woman of Spain. It's going to be Mary, Queen of Scots, because Mary outranks her. She's a queen regnant, right? Plus, Mary. Mary has this thing. She's so charismatic, and she's pretty, and everyone is always in love with her. I mean, that is one thing that just seems to be very true about Mary, is that she has this je ne sais quoi, you know, people are mesmerized by her. And Catherine is really worried that she's going to work her, that charm in, mm. um, in, in Spain. And so any political importance or political power that Elizabeth has to help her mother in Spain will be lost completely. So it's it, all tied together. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's it's. I just really love the way that that it's it's brought so many different courts and dynamics together. Um, and also there's sort of this sadness. It feels like we sort of said a little bit earlier about the sort of bit of a similarity with Mary and Catherine, how their stories begin, and actually still some of the same story, uh, same issues, like with religion and how Mary is a catholic but she comes to a protestant country and she's struggling to deal find a a more reasonable solution trying to work with her protestant subjects catherine's trying to find a solution to uh that issue in france both of them trying to get philip ii to pay them the full attention yes. the full heed they sort of feel like they're kind of plowing the same yes path. exactly exactly yeah. and in some ways you know Catherine was really well positioned to help Mary. Mm. It, it, you know, they 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 shared, like you said, they they had very similar experiences, uh, uh, very similar sort of dynamics ruled their lives, um, and yet because there is this sort of you know key division, right? The the Guises mm. and that question of how you manage the the protestant problem <laughs> that's mm. you know how mm. it was often phrased um that keeps them from being able to trust each other and then also there, there is a kind of like fickleness to mary you know she, she kind of she's still a teenager let's not forget when she mm. goes to mm. to scotland she's 18 years old you know i i don't know 
I don't know that we should have expected more of her necessarily. 18 and she'd been queen of France as well. So she's... And, and, <laughs> yes, and also queen consort, right? Like that's a very specific type of role. And and she really excelled at that. She was, mm. except for having a child, which she was not yet able to do, in some ways, Mary was raised to be a queen consort, not a queen regnant. So she doesn't know what she's doing. <laughs> and she's kind of grasping at different strategies to make her very strong, very opinionated Scots nobles, you know, like her. That's what she wants. She wants them to like her so that they don't cause problems. She's, she's not very crafty about it. Uh, Catherine is a much craftier person. And I've often wondered if, if one of the reasons why Catherine who really is such a survivor. One of the you know, reasons why is because she had this very difficult childhood and she needed to learn how to navigate and sort of fight for herself. You know, things did not come easy. Whereas for Mary Queen of Scots, things came really easy. It was, you know, she had a very coddled childhood. And so she never had, she never faced adversity which, you know, maybe is a lesson to us all as parents. You know, give your children some adversity, right? Because they'll learn to be resilient. One thing you, you do see with Mary in Scotland is she's not, she's not resilient. And, and on the one hand, you know, she just, she didn't really have the support structure that she really needed. On the other hand, maybe she just didn't have this sort of internal kind of grit that was mm -hmm. necessary. But then again, maybe it was just circumstances. Um, so yes, she and Catherine should have been friends, but they weren't. Uh, Mary, Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth Tudor should have been friends, but they weren't, you know, because there's always this thread mm. of mistrust. Mm. And the, uh, okay, and we can see this Catherine's uh, irritation with Mary is this too starry, too, uh, you know, sort of light that shines too bright for everybody else. I guess we, we're sort of losing a little bit of track of Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth de Valois, de Valois. Mm -hmm. in this. So what's, her experience when she goes to Spain, you said initially was, she was still very young, probably wasn't fully sort of menstruating yet. So yes. how does she get on as Queen of Spain when she actually is there? So, um, well, at the beginning, it's a struggle. Um, you know, she's she's barely entered puberty, if she has at all. Um, she also seems to have some sort of chronic illness. Uh, well, let's say she does have a chronic illness. It's just not clear when it first starts to manifest. Um, she has, uh, she gets ill a lot. She, uh, she vomits a lot. She has headaches. She gets nosebleeds. And it's pretty clear at the end of the of her life that she's, she's dying from some sort of kidney failure. So she might've had some sort of chronic, you know, kidney problem, uh, for her whole life. And, you know, I, I do think that it started to manifest itself before she left for Spain because Catherine seems worried from the get-go about how she's, you know, doing. And then on top of that, within her first, you know, 18 months, she gets smallpox, <laughs> really a horrible, you know, sort of a horrible situation. And, and she just doesn't know quite how to navigate um, being queen of Spain because she's so young. Her husband, Philip, is 20 years older than her. He's very polite to her. He, he wouldn't not have been. It, 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 there's sort of Spanish codes of respect. So, so he was he was very respectful, but he wasn't he didn't he wasn't very affectionate, and he wasn't you know he certainly wasn't really listening to her. And um, Catherine, from very early, kind of needed Elizabeth 
to exert some sort of political influence on Philip. So, so Catherine is is very interested in in, in cultivating Elizabeth into something that can be described as almost Catherine's agent in Spain. And so she does this in a couple ways. First of all, she just starts writing to her daughter. And, you know, you think about like helicopter parents or like, you know, hovering mothers. Catherine was, a, she was just, she was very much a hovering mother. I think she's sort of inclined to be that way. You know, even if the political situation had been great, she probably was inclined to be that way. But the political situation is also extremely tense. And so that makes her even more of a hovering mom. So she sends letter after letter to Spain. And she also um, has appointed a pretty extensive entourage of French ladies in waiting around Elizabeth who are there to kind of help her figure out the court of Spain. Um, and so, you know, the thing is, so Elizabeth is a, is a very sort of gentle, very obedient person. Uh, not she's 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 charismatic, but she's very dutiful to her mother, um, and she she fears her mother a little bit. And so, certainly in the early years, she is not going to do anything to displease her mother. And on the contrary. She's very worried about pleasing her mother. So, you know, she knows that the only way she can really please her mother is if she's successful as the Queen of Spain. Now, one of the problems that she has that any woman in her position would have is that um, a queen consort's position at a court isn't um, secure until she has a child, uh, hopefully the heir. So right away, you know, Elizabeth knows that her job is to get pregnant as soon as she can and have this child. And just like her mother before her, she can't do this. Uh, she she doesn't succeed. Um, she has, first of all, there's a long period of time where it's not even clear that they were sleeping together. And then when they were sleeping together, she has trouble getting pregnant. Um, some definite miscarriages. There were probably other miscarriages um, earlier on. It takes her quite a while. But at the same time, something else seems to be going on, which suggests that Elizabeth, in fact, was very much taking in her mother's lessons and was quietly succeeding as Queen of Spain. And that is somehow or another, she gets uh, Philip to like her and <laughs> even possibly love her. Um, and one evidence of this is that Elizabeth finally does um, get pregnant, uh, a, a certifiable pregnancy. Like it's clear that she's pregnant and she does miscarry, but it does make it clear to everyone, including Philip, that she can get pregnant. And this is like great news for everyone. <laughs> like he's not, he, if he was thinking about repudiating her, he decides not to because it's clear that she can get pregnant. But to me, that's also a mark that he has started to develop. He's interested in preserving that relationship, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's for the peace treaty, but also because he's starting to like Elizabeth. Certainly by the time that she has her first um, daughter, she ends up having two daughters. Uh, by the time she has her first um, uh, child, Philip has really become quite a devoted husband, quite a, an attentive husband. So in that, Elizabeth has succeeded in exactly what Catherine wanted her to do. She has gotten Philip to 
to like her and, mm-hmm. and to start listening to her. So how that exactly happened, we don't, we can't be sure, I should say. But, you know, the whole time in her early queenship, Catherine is writing to her. She's also writing to the ladies in waiting around um, Elizabeth, you know, telling them how they should instruct her, what she should say to Philip, what she should wear, <laughs> you know, all sorts of things to, to, to kind of get her in his good graces. And she does. So in some ways it worked. <laughs> so do you think it's Catherine sort of having so much good advice that she's able to sort of from afar direct the relationship or is there any extent to which maybe Elizabeth not being Catherine actually pays more dividends long term than if she'd done it like maybe actually Philip because Philip's always got a bit suspicious of Catherine isn't he he's never like he doesn't want to meet her or really (laughs) have too much to do with her oh no And, and he does not like her policies at all yes I think so I think you're right um you know, I, I oh gosh, I would love to have been a fly on the wall. I mean, there there are many times where later, when when Elizabeth gets older, you can see her kind of pushing against her mother, right? Uh, for instance, Catherine wants to send uh, midwives, uh, French midwives, to help with the birth of Elizabeth's first child, and Elizabeth keeps saying no, no, and even Philip thought it was a good idea, and Elizabeth says no. So, so you do see some ways as she gets older that she starts to become less um, sort of Catherine's 100% obedient child. And, and I kind of wonder if it isn't a little bit of a combination of the two, right? Like taking some of Catherine's advice, but also you know, being savvy enough on her own, or perhaps with the advice of some of the Spanish women around her, including her sister-in-law, um, Juana, you know, to kind of, to kind of read the room, right? Like Elizabeth learned how to, how to read the room in a very Spanish way and uh, use that to her advantage. So, so one of the things you, you see in, in, in uh, contemporary uh, descriptions of Elizabeth when she's about 20 years old is how hybrid she is in some ways, the kind of French, kind of Spanish. And maybe that that hybridity was sort of the secret sauce. <laughs> it was the formula that that eventually worked. And, you know, it, it's just so too bad uh, for so many reasons that she died so young because it, for the historian, right, it would have been just amazing to see how that developed as she mm. got older. And then it's interesting that sort of the way that, that we'd had that parallel of them all coming together and the death of um, Henry II, sort of the point at which they diverge, it feels sort of 1567 to 68, they all go through sort of some pretty traumatic things, obviously in Elizabeth's case, sadly, dying. Um, but yes. actually that's when Mary's queenship in Scotland falls apart. Catherine has some major issues to deal with in terms of the internal uh, unrest Yes. Yes. So, okay. So uh, there, there was, there were sort of, and sometimes um, in in writing this book, these sort of uncanny points of connection chronologically Hmm. that would just make me sit back and say, no way. (laughs) And one of them was the fact that these two young queens fall one way or another in 1568 uh, as you said El- elizabeth dies doing the thing that she's supposed to do um she she's pregnant with her third child uh the whole pregnancy um was difficult she had been having health problems actually ever since the 
birth of her second child and eventually it kills her. And one of the sort of paradoxes or ironies, the tragedies of that situation is that, you know, again, like a queen's first duty is to give birth to children. But that's also the thing that could kill her. And in Elizabeth's mm-hmm. case, it it definitely does. Um, and she never gives birth to the boy, right? So another sort of historical tragedy is is one of the reasons why I think history has forgotten Elizabeth is because she never gives birth to that boy. She's never sort of the mother of the future king. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, her body and emotionally, she had gone through so much to 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 you know have the children that she did um but at least historically speaking it's not good enough even though philip did love those yeah yeah it's sad he he did love those daughters uh mary yes it's in 1568 that um she you know essentially there's a coup and she's ousted from the scottish throne and she has to flee to england where she's expecting help from elizabeth tudor but instead becomes a political prisoner, which she remains for the rest of her days. And, you know, at various different points, she reaches out to France for help, um, but they are not, or they're not able, or they are unwilling to give her the help that, you know, that she's looking for. And then Catherine, oh gosh, you know, Catherine, the whole time, the whole reason why she's negotiating between Protestants and Catholics, um, especially once her son, um, Charles IX, accedes to the throne in the early 1560s, is that um, she's trying to stave off civil war. But pretty soon after Charles accedes to the throne, civil war breaks out. And, you know, the rest of the century and well into the 17th century is marked by these extremely bloody civil wars between Protestants and Catholics. Um, And she's never able to get out of them ever, ever. After each one, she keeps trying. <laughs> you know, she issues this edict or that edict, or she, you know, finds she tries to find other ways to create the peace. But what happens is each side gets just more firmly entrenched and more polarized um, and and more violent. So in the end, you know, she she actually fails. I, Catherine fails uh, to to kind of lead the kingdom out of this period of war. And I think that hasn't really done much to help her reputation. Hmm. You know, she's seen as an incompetent ruler. Um, although, you know, you do see the, the the kind of writings of several ambassadors at the time who, who, who say, look, no one, no one could have led France out of this morass. You know, hmm. we shouldn't be blaming the queen mother. You only have three. But we do. Three boys, <laughs> three boy kings in a row in a time yes. of religious civil yes. war. Yes, yeah. yes, and and no one having a child, no one having mm. you know. So so the dynasty is just looking weaker and weaker. And does Catherine have much interest in? Like you said, she doesn't really do anything to help Mary when Mary sort of reaches out when she's in England. Obviously, Mary ultimately is executed. Mm. Uh, by Elizabeth I, eventually, because it takes quite a long time to persuade Elizabeth to do that. Does mm-hmm. does Catherine take an interest in that? She, does she try and influence Mary's fate at all, or has she washed her hands of Mary by this point? Uh, I don't... Yes and no. Oh, gosh, what an ambivalent answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the problem is, is that we can't always know what's going on in their heads. And mm. and one thing, particularly with Catherine, that you see a lot is a kind of doublespeak. 
you know, she'll say one thing and she'll do one thing, but then in another letter, she'll seem to hint something else. And, you know, so often I want to say, well, the real Catherine, please stand up. Like, tell me what you really want. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, she does at the end of Mary's life, um, by then her her third son, Henry, Henry III is king of France. And he sends deputies to, you know, try to negotiate with Elizabeth Tudor to, um, if not release Mary, at least, you know, uh, argue on her behalf, certainly, you know, not to uh, be executed. Um, and, um, you know, and, and Catherine does right. And, you know, at least on the surface, there is this effort, um, you know, to the French to save Mary's life. But you never quite know what's kind of going on behind the scenes or mm -hmm. under the surface. I will say, um, you know, when Catherine does hear of Mary's death, she has this one letter where she says, oh, my gosh, <laughs> you know, what an insult. What an insult to my son, you know, since he had sent all these deputies to, you know, argue for her reprieve. But on the other hand, there's another letter from a week earlier that suggests that she had already heard that Mary had been executed. And she doesn't seem very emotional in that letter at all. She seems more calculating, like, oh, hmm, did this happen? I'm going to find out if it's true. And, you know, it's hard to know if that how to read that. Is, is that uh, Catherine being careful not to overreact to something that might just be a rumor? Or is that Catherine maybe not caring very much and kind of suspecting for quite a while that this is what was going to happen to Mary. A little hard to say. And it's interesting, he's like saying the double speak in relation to that. And it's sort of, it's similar in a way to Elizabeth, Elizabeth I herself, where she sort of makes out like she doesn't want anything to happen to Mary and she's appalled that it's happened, but equally she does sign the death warrant or mm -hmm. yes. attach her seal. And of course, Elizabeth yes. is the daughter-in-law that could have been for Catherine de Medici. She's sort of the, you know, links with a couple of Catherine's sons. And are they perhaps in a weird way, almost the two most similar characters? Because Elizabeth has got that survival thing, the a bit more cautious, a bit more tactical and astute. And Elizabeth also had a difficult childhood. Mm. Yeah. And um, so I, I, I think, yes, I think that Catherine and Elizabeth, um, you know, are, are, are quite evenly matched <laughs> in many ways. They're, they're very gritty. Um, they're, they're very good with words, very good with words. Um, they know how to tell people kind of what they want to hear and yet do something a little bit different. And they don't necessarily have any qualms about changing their minds if it's politically expedient. Mm. Um, yeah. So in some ways, you know, I, you know, Estelle Peronk has has done this book, right, on Catherine de Medici and um, and Elizabeth I. And I think it's such a great pairing. And in some ways, you know, that perhaps is the relationship to really look at instead of Elizabeth I and, um, and Mary, Queen of Scots, because in some yeah. ways they were, I mean, temperament-wise, possibly even intellectually, there was really no match there. Mm. You know, perhaps that's been really romanticized. Um, but is not necessarily the most interesting political, um, you know, sort of political relationship to to explore. Hmm. Or I should say, there are other political relationships to explore that are equally or more interesting. Yeah. So, sort of looking at the three of them, then who would you say, who would you say was the most successful 
of the queens. Mm. Obviously, it's difficult with the different roles and different periods of time they actually live for, but... Um, well... So, in some ways, that's hard for me to answer because I think of, uh, you know, at least the way I went about this book as their stories all being quite sad in a way. Mm. And in some ways, they were all kind of doomed to fail, partially because they are women, you know, and and, and that's uh, baked in a little bit to this subtitle, you know, The Price of Power, mm. right? Um, even if they succeeded to some measure, you know, history has treated all three of them unkindly in some ways. Um, so, but in terms of just surviving, I would have to say Catherine, mm. you know, um, and, you know, whether or not she, she can be blamed for what happens in France, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I think these political situations get so complex. I don't think it's easy to, you know, to assign blame to anybody, um, just like it's hard to, in our own political world, it's hard to, you know, assign uh, blame. Everything just gets so um, obfuscated and complex. But the thing about Catherine is that she just kept going, right? Like she, she never retreats. She never decides to retire, for instance, and go live on one of her properties or, you know, retire to a convent. She could have done that, but she doesn't do that. So she just keeps on going. Um, in in terms of, you know, um, a different version of success, I would say Elizabeth de Valois was successful in many ways, certainly in, you know, becoming a, a queen consort that her husband and her subjects um, loved and admired, right? Which would have been the goal of any queen consort and she definitely gets there. Um, but unfortunately, you know, if, if you're measured by a certain standard, if you have a son, if you live a long life, you know, she, she fails in that, in that way. And as for Mary, uh, I know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think by many measures, Mary does not succeed, but I don't know. I, I I don't I don't necessarily want to to blame her for that. I, I do think that the odds were kind of stacked against her. And I guess sort of ironically, particularly with the the dynastic elements, like say with the Catherine, her sons all die without leaving heirs, and that line ends. Elizabeth doesn't have the son that becomes king of Spain, but actually Mary, for all her struggles, it is her son and line that actually does take over yes, England, and but... so she sort of has the legacy, but it's not really her personal actions necessarily but it does and you know again the sort of paradox that haunts so many women she does have the son but because she has the son she can be deposed mm. that's what happens yeah. right like oh, having God. the child and having the son was supposed to be the thing that made you know everyone endorse her reign but in fact, it's just he's just weaponized against her. So, you know, the rebels who want her out, they don't need her anymore. They have yeah. the little boy. So 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 that, you know, that that's that's the thing. Like even when you succeed as queen, you still lose. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's everything stacked against you. It's like Mary of Modena, the way she mm. did everything she was trying to do, she did she was given the checklist, ticked them all off, but somehow it all was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Poor thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
so that I think was sort of one of the patterns that I saw between these three women. Um, this this i this idea of, of, of you know of, of this sort of um, impossible mountain to climb or the odds being stacked against you um, because you're because you're female. So you know, and even if you if you do kind of get past it, like Catherine de Medici, for instance, um, you know, history has not been kind to her um, for for a host of reasons. Um, but it's easier to blame her too instead of say her sons who are the actual kings. <laughs> In part because she was, you know, she's deemed a foreigner, even though, you know, as we've discussed, that's a far more complex situation. And because she's because she's the woman, you know, she's the queen mother. So in terms of, uh, you know, like, who do we want to value? Who do we want to prize? She's sort of expendable. Hmm. And if her husband hadn't got himself messed up in a guy's his face smashed him with a lance when he didn't need to be doing that then the whole right. next 20 years might have been a whole lot easier it might have been enough. totally different yeah for sure it's all henry's fault <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it's funny these little moments that we love having these little chat the counterfactual moments yes. the what ifs yeah. how yes. some of these things could have been so different because it, it often does, right? There seems to be like a moment or, or, or something around which something, mm. you know, sort of a very pivotal uh, incident or time where, where the mm. whole thing turns and, and, and shifts. All three of their lives seem to be sort of trying to recover from that that one moment where everything just gets sent off in slightly the wrong direction. They could all have been a bit more set. Yeah. And... yeah. yeah. The, um, the Everyone seeming to running running as fast as they can because life being so cheap it, we were meant to saying earlier that everyone's sort of just doing it while they can it it seemed like they were doing the same and they just couldn't oh they could never it like or rather that life is so precious at that at all times but so delicate life's in such delicate balance that it yes. could have just gone the other way at any moment and just didn't all oh that's all history isn't it like <laughs> No, it is. In France. Hmm. Yeah. And, and so I don't want to say that, like, you know, the problem with the what ifs is that, you know, three days later, hmm. something else could have happened. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, like there are those, yeah. those theories. But it, it, there is something, I, I actually think that, you know, what, what we're talking about is, is sort of the, the narrative aspect or the storytelling aspect of history when we look back, you know, and, yeah. and, and these events have unfurled and then we see that there's this, this one moment where everything shifted mm. and that some tap taps into it's sort of like this um the sense of story that we have yeah. about history so i think that's what we're sensing here it's like yeah. this this sort that's of really uh, point. critical point yeah and yeah, wishing that the story could change like yeah. Film. Yeah. yes yeah and it's an interesting agency question again if you're seeing that as this defining moment for the three of them and again it's a man dies and then the women all have uh. to find a way to deal with the aftermath right. right and and so and that you know well one of the things when you talk about women's history is that when you talk about certainly these women but i think a lot of women throughout history you also have to talk about men right because they're there <laughs> <laughs> they're very important to their lives and um you know, they create these dynamics in which, you know, the women then have to survive or they have to negotiate. But what's so interesting is how often history from like sort of a more male point of view has been able to leave out the women. Yeah. And, and yet, on the other hand, like one thing I, I try to do in this book is show, well, actually, 
you know, that's, that's such a, um, sort of false way to go about it. Because if you look, for instance, at, um, you know, all the concern about Elizabeth de Valois and her childbearing and whether she was getting her period and things like that, that was all, everyone was worried about that for political reasons, mm -hmm. you know, um, if she had been able to bear a son, if she had gotten pregnant earlier, there are all sorts of these ifs. And there were a lot of things riding on this question, um, mm -hmm. you know, sort of the question, um, Sorry, a lot of things riding on this question, it has everything to do with this young girl's body. So leaving out the women, I think, is is not necessarily, um, well, it's not necessarily, you know, the best way to go about history. It's not the most authentic and, the, you know, the most revelatory, revelatory way to go about telling the history of any given period or any given moment. It's just half the story. Yeah, and a really integral part of it. Yeah, when they're when they're so, so, such even if they are political pawns, mm -hmm. that's you know they're, they're, that's still a massive role. Yeah. They're yes, still they're still yes. on the board, aren't they? Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But even within their you know pawnship, for la lack of a better term, like Elizabeth of Valois, she still has a lot of agency, you know, and it's a quieter agency, but it's still very much there, and uh, and we should pay attention to it. Mm. Well, Leah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about that. It's been really fascinating learning yeah. about the three of them, but also their connections. Well, thank you so much for having me on and for your great questions. <laughs> um, how can people, uh, if they want to know more about you or to follow you on social media, etc., where, where should they? Probably the best place to start is my website, which is leahredmanchang.com. And I'm also on Instagram, and I have a newsletter on Substack called Close Reading. Um, which, uh, well, it's a number of different things, but I try to look at the small details of women's lives and unpack them and talk about their importance to the bigger historical narrative. And the book cool. again is Young Queens, Three Renaissance Women and the Price of Power. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining us. All right. <laughs> thank you so much, you guys. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Cheers. So that was Leia Redmond Chang on her book, Young Queens. Let us know what you thought about all of that. If you'd like to get in touch, find us on Twitter and Instagram at RexFactorPod or email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review, subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use or donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get lots of bonus episodes at Patreon.com forward slash RexFactor. And we have some Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Kim Stewart. Kim Whitaker. Joe Evans, Morgan Ellison, Alex Crumpton, John McCright, Michael Tate, Maria Somas, Alistair Thwaite, Erin Bratu, Sarah Samaletin, Alicia Moyers, Meg French, Anna Litkow, Krista Eggleston, Michelle Buckle, Callie Catt, Bethany Smith, Rachel Vale, All Hug 413, Jenny Hagstrom, Will Johnson, Tracy Gandhi, Elizabeth Johnson and Samantha Locke. Arise, one and all, and your first task as Privy Councillors, because there, there is work involved, <laughs> is to sign up to our Discord server, because that's where we chat and live, and, um, well, that's where you can find me. <laughs> so that is all from us today. Hopefully you enjoyed that interview with Leia. Our next interview will be with Dr Linda Porter, where we'll be discussing the mistresses of Charles II. Brilliant. See you next time. Bye.